Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISO and security engineers act fast, prevent burnout, and implement DevSecOps at the speed of cloud. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have a long, long-awaited friend that we, we shared a lot of a lot of chat, a lot of discussion, and we said, why don't we take this stuff over the podcast? And here we are with Travis McPeak. So myself and Travis goes, I guess, long way from the time of Netflix. But before I dive into the history and I feel old about it, Travis, tell us a little bit more about you for the few people that don't know you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm a security generalist, so I I have always loved security, even when I was a kid. I've usually done security at large companies. So, you know, currently I've I've started a company. This is definitely the smallest environment I've ever been in. Before that, Databricks was the smallest environment I've ever been in, and I've worked at some giant giant companies. So, yeah, I think uh, I think you know, security really the strategy depends on the environment that you're in and the resources and things like that. So, I've really enjoyed learning about companies at all stages and, and how they approach security, given their concerns and the resources that they have. Brilliant. And yeah, welcome to the show. And we have a tradition that we look at the industry as a whole, and you had probably a good finger in, in a lot of organization, and you have had a good taste of what it looks like cyber and how to build an environment from a cyber perspective from the early days of the cloud to nowadays. So like late stage of cloud and application security and all getting meshed together. What's your view? Where, where are we and what we're doing good and what we're doing not good? Totally. Yeah. So I think, you know, back back in the day, security was fairly simple. There really wasn't that much stuff to know. And today, no person can possibly understand all domains of security. There's so much. We have specialties. You know, you can be a, a specialist in AppSec or cloud security or detection and response or whatever. And the other thing that has has really changed is that we expect developers to own a lot more security than they used to. So back in the day, security would own security by themselves. You know, they would come by and do a review of the product before it ships, and then they would say, "Oh, this this is unacceptable risk. We need to fix it." Now, in many environments, developers are the front line of security, and they are expected to own it for themselves. And so, with what I said first, which is this is too complex. Like no one person can understand this stuff, and developers need to do this as part of their regular job it's become clear that we need to empower developers more. We can't just say, hey, you know, you need to learn the OWASP top 10 and the cloud 50 and all of these detection and response principles and how to do identity and the difference between SAML and OIDC and all of these things. It's just, it's beyond the grasp of anybody. And so to, to make a developer so that they can own some security effectively, we need to provide them with really good tools and make as much as possible just free. They don't have to worry about it. They just get the right answer for free. No, and that's that's really good point. And and I know that you guys on Netflix originally nailed this, nailed it, and 
blogged a lot about it. So tell us the Netflix way or tell us the paved roadway. Sure. Yeah. So I actually just uh, interviewed my friend Jason Chan about this. He's been at Netflix a lot longer than I have. And I was wondering, where did this approach come from? And so paved road is really actually, even at Netflix, was not a security term. It was a DevOps term. And the DevOps folks really wanted to make it possible for developers to do DevOps things on behalf of their application without learning a lot. And so, for example, they created seamless logging. You would just, if you if you dropped in a certain way of doing things, then you would get good logs and you'd get alerted when your service went down and things like that. So security really co-opted this term. The beginning of security heavily investing in paved road at Netflix started with Lemur. And so in, in Heartbleed in 2014, I think anybody in security remembers where they were when that vulnerability hit. Netflix, like everybody, realized, oh, crap, we may have had some of our private key material leaked here. And so we're going to have to rotate those keys and rotate the certificates. And Netflix, like many companies, realized we actually don't know how to do that because we don't know where these private keys are. We don't know who owns the certificates. And so there was no process where they could go and rotate things. Part of what they did in response to that was start with an inventory. So instead of just developers creating random private keys and stuff, stuffing them under their desk, Netflix created a, an open source project called Lemur. And Lemur was really the first true win-win. So developers, if you think about what they have to do without something like Lemur, there's a lot of complexity. They have to select a Cypress suite, you know, and cryptography is complex. Like, how do you select a Cypress suite? Developers shouldn't have to know. So select a Cypress suite, generate a key, generate a certificate, get that certificate over to their load balancer, and then rotate it every year or whatever before it expires. So that's a ton of complexity. Developers don't want to do it. Lemur offers, instead of doing all of that, you just press a button, tell us about your application, and we'll go and get Cypress suite, private key, certificate, handle rotation for you. So of course, developers say like, yeah, that's much better than what I do today. Of course, we're going to use that. And from a security perspective, now you have an inventory, you know who owns what, you know that the Cypher suites are selected well, you know the private keys are managed securely. And so all of these benefits to both sides. And it became so powerful that Netflix invested a ton in security in building these paved roads because it's such a win-win. So that was really the start of it. And there was a lot more paved road investments and success stories after that. So basically making security really free or embedded or easy to use or like this is a plugin, this is something that you use, this is the way to standardize it and everybody use it because it's frictionless. That's right. Yeah, the state of the art, the best thing that you can get to, in my opinion, is that developers don't even know that they're doing something secure. It's just the thing that they want to do out of convenience also happens to be the most secure option. And so if you can get to that point where developers have to know very little about security, really, you want them you want them to just know when they're doing something risky and they need to go ask for help. Other than that, they shouldn't really understand anything about security. It should just be baked in. Now, of course, that's, you know, that's an ideal world and we have a long way to get there. But I think that the more that we can move towards that, the better off everybody is. No, I like I like that you put it because it's it's we don't want to be idealists. We don't want to say, well, we, we we think for you because otherwise we don't create a little bit that culture of security. But also you have the completely extreme of security. Uh, a developer, you need to learn everything from full stuff because I can't know it and you, you will need to know. So removing some of those elements and making them frictionless, I think is a really good point. But there was a lot of investments and as as I usually joke with my friend from Google to protect against a nation state, we deploy a little bit of a nation state budget and Netflix is a 1% and few of them can have that engineering power or can afford that engineering power. 
So how do we make this available for the rest of the organization? So if you are a small organization, how do you even fathom something like this? Yeah, it's a good question and two parts of it. First of all, I think that I want, I'm excited to see the industry move more in this direction. So Netflix creates a lot of tools out of necessity. When we start to have problems, we're a little bit, we have been traditionally a little bit ahead of the curve. And so for example, Netflix created probably the first cloud security posture management or one of the first, and that, that was Security Monkey. The category didn't exist. We needed an inventory in some way to find misconfiguration. So Netflix released Security Monkey. You know, fast forward five years later, there's a mature industry around cloud security posture management. And so Netflix would not, continue to maintain Security Monkey. Now that void is covered by the industry so they can go focus on other more differentiated problems. So one answer I think is that as, a, as an industry, we're gonna offer more of these solutions as a, as a service. So you could just buy paved road solutions to various problems that you have. Another part is I think that you know companies worry about different things depending on their, their posture and maturity and capabilities. So one of the things that I've enjoyed doing is working with startups and specifically for their security program. So something I've done a few times, I'll, I'll go in, I'll meet with founders, I'll understand what it is they're building, what is their risk profile, and I'll help them get a security program started. And so those companies generally worry about totally different things. So they have a smaller scale, so building a paved road is not necessarily a top priority for them. What they do need to handle is, is like, you know, I'll call it like the hierarchy of needs and security, right? In humans, we need like shelter and water and food and all of this stuff. I'd say like insecurity, you need, you know, I would say today you, you should manage identity well. If you're, you have username and passwords and you don't have a good MFA story, you're going to be in trouble. So those kinds of things, you know, basic vulnerability management, inventory, things like that. That's where companies tend to start. And then building really a culture of developers knowing when they should come to security for help. So you're probably going to have one, you know, maybe two security people at a small company. Those security people setting up a contract, which is like, anytime you you bump into these kind of things, please come and talk to me because I will help you with it. It can be quite useful. So that's where you start on the small side. Then you get to like kind of a medium level of maturity. This is where paved roads can start to come into play. So one of the things I, I really like is SumGrep. I think it's a nice integration tool where you know it can it can tell you about paved road practices. I don't think it's it's great for finding vulnerabilities. It can do that, but that's not how I would recommend using it. I would recommend, you know, one of the one of the good examples here is like you have a secure logging library that sets everything up for you. And if you have some grep, then you can say like, please use the library and don't use like raw logging or whatever. So those kinds of things, like to educate developers about good practices, is pretty powerful. And unfortunately. You know, companies don't have to invent a lot of this for themselves. Many frameworks and languages and things like that have good security baked in. So it's really a matter of just guiding developers to use the right aspects of whatever framework and language they have. Right. And we're getting more into that, I think, paved road or language that remove problem altogether or secure methods. But I really like the, the point that you made on the alternative use of SEMgrep or any other configurable if you want code scanner that is beyond, above and beyond just pure identifying the problem and reacting to the problem in a reactive way, but more of, are you building things in a secure way? Are you using the standard that an organization can put together as a, a la paved road? And that brings me to another question of like, what's your thought about operational security or reactive security versus the shift left and the paved road? Or how do you keep a balance between the two? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I think that both a mature security program should include aspects from, from all cycles of security. 
you know, protect, detect, respond. And I, th- I think that scanners are, are really important. You need to make sure that nothing's slipping through the cracks and you can identify issues. And the best way to do that is to actually look at what you have in prod. So I think that that scanners, you know, I'll talk about cloud security here because it's the where I'm spending most of my time today. I think cloud security scanners certainly have a place. Uh, I think one thing that I've noticed is that as an industry, we've become over-reliant on scanners. And so what many companies do is they just, security deploys a scanner, they run the scan, they take all the findings, they ingest it, they go and you know assign JIRA tickets for developers to fix it. You know, many of those JIRA tickets sit there for a while because developers aren't getting paid and promoted to fix JIRA tickets um, if they're for security. So, you know, then you kind of get into this situation where security is like, no, 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 this one's really important. Please fix this. And it's kind of it's kind of a painful cycle where security spends a lot of time chasing people down with with TPMs and TPMing people to death, I like to say. So <laughs> I, th- I think we want to you know make this as easy as possible. And the way that we do that is by really guiding developers to, to pick the right things from the beginning. If, you know, if you've adopted a, a way where developers can get what they need and it's pretty easy for them, they just need to be aware of what that is, then you can guide them to pick the right thing from the get-go. And now as they're creating the code, it's like, hey, use this. It's easier for you and it's going to prevent the issue and we're not going to have to go and Jira you later. So I really I really think that the, the proactive approach can help with that. Is Jira becoming a verb? <laughs> yeah, Jira, we're going to go and Jira you. Get, I got Jira, <laughs> Jira to death. We're like an army of TPMs descended and just jeer at everybody. Yeah, it's definitely a verb. But then, <laughs> I'm not using a lot. <laughs> but that's the reality. I think that's the reality of any enterprise organization nowadays is a sea of problem. And because we don't even know which Jira project goes where, you even have Jira of Jiras. Right. <laughs> so a recursive version of Jira, like you have the security Jira and then the development Jira and you basically die, live and die on Jira. And, and that's not the way to do security, like reacting on issue and triaging things in and out. So I really like the paved road, the shift left. But how do you sell it to the business? How do you sell that dream to the business? I say, where are my metrics? I know vulnerability. I know burn down rate. I know certain metrics because we, as an industry, I think we kill them to death to say less vulnerability, less critical in production, less, less, less. How do you how do you turn that agenda into, well, let's kill it beforehand. And then, you know, the question will be, how do you measure that? Right. Yeah. So I think one nice, easy way to do this is you have, let's say, cloud security posture management, mm-hmm. and it tells you you have, you know, 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 vulnerabilities or whatever you have. And then you start doing proactive approach and you can actually see a measurable decrease in the number of vulnerabilities that you have. And then each for each vulnerability, you can do some basic, you know, back of the napkin calculation and say, you know, how much went into actually fixing this once we had the JIRA? So there's like the developer time once they actually fix it. There's the security time and the TPM time going and tracking people down and, and JIRAing them. And so you can add up this time and you can make an assumption that for every vulnerability that we address proactively, we probably saved, I don't know what the number is, like 10, 20 hours or something like that on average. And so, you know, with that, if you see a 50%, you let's say that you have, you know, a, a cloud security dashboard and you have 5,000 problems in it, which I don't think is like an unrealistic number. You know, many companies have many, many more than that. Let's say that you're able to reduce it 50%. So now, you know, 2,500 of those vulnerabilities in a period of time don't exist anymore. And for each one of those, you save two days of time. Now you can take that and you can multiply it by how much do you, does your average engineer cost? And you can really see time savings. Of course, the other part of this is that 
if you don't get a, you know, if you, if you're detecting a vulnerability in prod and then you don't fix it because you're waiting, you know, you're, you're juring people and it takes a while, then you have a vulnerability window. And any, any time that a vulnerability exists in prod, like every day you have some cumulative chance of that impacting you and you having a breach for it. So what I talked about right now is just time saved and it isn't even including your reduced breach window. So I think, you know, businesses have different ways of calculating that, but you can basically, you can draw a line to how much is a breach going to cost you? And then how likely is any individual vulnerability to lead to a breach? And then you can draw, you know, we saved a hundred days of vulnerability on this. And so we made X percent likely to have a breach and that is going to save us Y dollars in the long run. Yeah, no, I think that's a really powerful method because it's kind of easy to benchmark or kind of calculate how much time you're spending on Jira ticket or like the average story point on a Jira problem. In general, you can measure that and then you can save the time. On average, I think we measured nine hours to 16 hours uh, to triage a complex versus non-complex vulnerability. So if you shave off even 50% of that time, that's engineering time that you can dedicate to back to building stuff instead of fixing stuff or security time to actually build paved road. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. So I think any way you add it up, you're saving time. That's going to save the the business money. Like every developer day costs some significant amount of money. Saving them time is a win. Having developers and security work on things that are specific to your business versus commodity bone fixing is definitely a win. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Phoenix platform connects to your repositories, scanners, and cloud, correlates all the information, and provides you with a prioritized list of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed first. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISOs and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at phoenix.security. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. You mentioned that the scale of maturity when an organization will start approaching paved roads and other other elements because in the very basic days, you don't have a lot of stuff. Maybe you don't have a lot of ticket or ticket that might impact you, but then it comes an inflection point where you start considering it. When would you say is that inflection point when you start considering, okay, I need to be more ship left or more proactive on the left? or start building fundamentally those building blocks so that later on I'm not slapped with the 5,000 to be graceful or the 40 million to be less graceful. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is going to be, you know, this is going to be environment specific. It's going to depend on, you know, how much resources you have to work on things. But where I always recommend that any company start is just do an assessment. You know, what kinds of issues have you been having? And if you break those down, if you were to build a solution that mitigates this class of problem, then you can draw a line out to like how many vulnerabilities in a given period of time that will save you. And then it should be easy to group based on where you want to spend your time and effort. I'll, I'll say the other thing is, you know, a lot of people think paved road and it's like, oh, I need to hire like a team of software engineers and we need to build this hyper specific thing. Like not necessarily. A lot of times you can take something off the shelf from a cloud provider, like an identity aware proxy. And you can say, this is our company's paved road for doing this. Or let's say like, you know, an Amazon, like vuln management, like drop-in solution, those kinds of things you can just enable everywhere. And you can, you can build a simple 
framework in code that that actually includes that thing. And so everybody just gets it for free. That's a paved road. It doesn't have to be something that you build yourself specifically. It's just, you know, your your endpoint solution is a paved road. It's like this is how this is how everybody for free is going to get vulnerabilities detected when they're on their laptop or whatever. So these are all like really paved roads. I think the the key point here is that you're covering some class of problem that developers don't have to worry about. Okay, I'd, I'd like to dig that more because that helps demystifying what is paved road, what are the common things that somebody can do because there is a lot of maybe fear on shifting left on building the full framework. Like as, as you rightfully said, I need to build my security engineering team to actually build some of these stuff. Like in AppSec, you have pre-made or pre-digested stuff in OWASP that you can include and it's default. And at least it's a baseline across the board. So let's demystify some of the paid road that you would suggest from an organization going from very small to maybe larger, like identity, you mentioned it, endpoint security, like certain controls that are there by default. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at a very early starting place, what language you choose for development can be a paved road. So, for example, when you know when I got started uh, early in my career, I worked on something called Bandit. Bandit is a static analysis. It's not really, it's a linter, but we used it like static analysis for Python. And so some of the common Bandit findings were, hey, you're using subprocess popen with shell equals true. And what that means is that attacker can pass any, an attacker can modify the input and actually cause a shell to escape and run a command. And the bandit couldn't tell if we were vulnerable or not because it wasn't full static analysis. So it couldn't tell what was the attacker input. It couldn't tell if it was attacker controlled or if it was being sanitized or anything like that. But what it could do is it could say, you're using this function in a dangerous way, use this instead. And so, so that is a very basic paved road. Uh, if, you, if you, instead of Python, if you use Golang, Golang is a newer language and handles many of these issues for you. And so Golang, you could call a paved road. Uh, it's actually very difficult to write any kind of command injection vulnerable software in Go. So, so that's a paved road. Uh, I think, you know, taking whatever, if, assuming that you're in the cloud, taking some of the, the solutions that they offer and just integrating those things in as a paved road. The really like salient point here is just developers shouldn't have to worry about like, how am I going to track vulnerabilities in my code? You know, how do I, how do I know when a vulnerable library exists and when I need to update it? That should be handled for you. Non-security paved road, I think, is really powerful is, is a deploy pipeline, for example. So right now in my company, you know, very recently we figured out like how do developers actually deploy through various environments, you know, to get confidence in what they're building and go to prod. So developers not having to figure that out for themselves each time. You know, now we have like a very simple GitHub Actions type pipeline that anybody can launch and they can say, like, yeah, this looks good, deploy it to prod or whatever. So that it's that is a paved road. And so I think, you know. Many people think that you have to invest heavily and have this team of differentiated software engineers to get there, but it's not. It's really just a shift in mindset. Like, how can you make it so developers have to worry about as little as possible? And I like that. I really like the frictionless approach because, and I was discussing this with few few people, that DevSecOps have maybe turned from a philosophy original perspective of removing friction to a developer into please do and fix stuff. Like we we kind of went down the road and we became corrupted as a security people that I think the conversation started really well 
at the very beginning of collaborating, but I rarely see security engineer participating in, in sprint planning or scrum team. And those are where those things actually pop up and say, well, maybe we could fix with some default. And if you do that on six teams, maybe you can't change language, but maybe you can use a, a, a consistent way to authenticate or a consistent method to load balance and things like that. And that's right. What you where where we got lost in this kind of transformation? Yeah, no, I, I, that's that's a good point. So I think what DevSecOps has become in many cases is security stuffing a bunch of tools into the CI process. You're like, okay, we're going to run you know a million security tools every time that you do build, and we're going to you know tell you about all these problems proactively. Stuffing security tools into into CI is not DevSecOps. You know, really, it's about helping developers as early as possible to effectively own security. I think we we got wrong. We went wrong because of essentially marketing. I think that many many you know security companies you know new and old were like, oh, this is a new thing, a new way of doing security. We're gonna like say DevSecOps and everything, yeah, and then and then that became basically a new way of hassling developers with traditional security mindset. So <laughs> that's where I think it went wrong. You know, some of these things are great. You know, showing showing issues in CI is better than finding them in prod for sure. I think you know where we go wrong here is when we're showing developers a whole bunch of issues that they really don't have the expertise or you know desire to really fix. You know, these things need to be hyper tuned. It's like we need to show you something that's highly actionable, you know, very low chance of being a false positive or, or not really relevant. That's where this can become an issue and and the things that I'm most excited about are not stuffing security findings into CI, but actually how can we do better than that? As the developers are creating stuff, how can we make them get the right answer without having to think about the right answer? Right, because that's even earlier than when you build. When you build, is already late because you need to reconsider and you get developer annoyed if it doesn't pass the build. And then, you know, if that happened consistently, you get frustration and you get parallel pipeline. That's right. <laughs> that deploy yeah. somewhere. That's right. So here's here's like a concrete example of this. Last year, I did a QCon talk about, you know, kind of like secure by default and some good examples of that. So one one good example here is like parameterized query. So if if you get all of your developers used to using parameterized query, then you can mitigate SQL injection. And so I think that the really good usage of security in CI is not to say, hey, this is like vulnerable to SQL injection. Well, many of those cases, it's wrong. It doesn't actually know you're missing standardization. But what you can do with very high likelihood is say, establish a pattern for your company like we should do SQL queries with this framework in this way. And you remind developers in CI that you're not using our standardized way. Now, if you use the standardized way, not going to be possible to have vulnerabilities. You don't have to worry about SQL injection. It's removed from your company as a consideration. And so instead of telling developers like this is specifically vulnerable, you remind them about the standard that they should already know about that's going to make also their life easier. That's that's where I think that we we can get the best value for everyone. So there is a better way than just breaking the build if you have so high critical I omit you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, we you know, many tools can't tell if there's a vulnerability in code or not. And we shouldn't be thinking that way. We should be, we've all agreed as a company that this is the best way that we're doing equal queries. And you know, we can for sure tell that you're not using our standard. So, you know, please rewrite it now. It's going to save you all of this heartache down the road. And even better than that. As a developer starts writing SQL in the browser or in their IDE, we should remind them, hey, here's our standard, here's guidance to it, here's snippets for you. All of that kind of stuff can make a developer's life so much easier. And it prevents that frustration of like they've written their whole thing, 
security comes in CI, says you have vulnerabilities when maybe you don't. You know, that's that's frustrating experience. I think that's another important factor because we did that with some static analysis tool. We brought them direct in the IDE, but we haven't brought in the IDE the reference to security standard, the reference to paved road, the reference for this is how security things should be done, or this is a snippet of code you can call to maybe a centralized library for authentication, or this is the standard way to call authentication, or this is the standard pre-build uh, WAF rule with the authentication engine already built in there, or the control sets that you, you should use. And calling them when somebody's writing the infrastructure as a code or the piece of code it's very powerful because you copy and paste, you, you create a stack trace or you get the security validated beforehand. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think that having basically like paved road recipes as a service is a very powerful concept. You know, these things are customized to the last mile. So every organization might do things a little bit different, but the high level concept is not differentiated to the extent that you're using, you know, the same frameworks and the same cloud environment that everybody else is using. It's just that those last mile details that need to be customized. And so making it so that companies have to stop reinventing this wheel for themselves would be a big win for everybody. How do we change the mindset? Because right now, a high maturity is breaking the build or high maturity is like the highest maturity I've seen has been, okay, we even, we set waivers to vulnerability for X amount of time. That's the highest maturity I've seen in breaking the build or or giving grace points to development team. What you're talking about is a really change in mindset in a very positive way, but how do we convince everybody? Right. So I think that developers don't need convincing here. I think that if you, <laughs> if you say like, hey, you know, instead of Jira hanging you to death, we're going to invest our time in making it dead simple for you to, to do this stuff. So you're going to get contextual reminders as you're doing things about a way that's going to make your life easier. And that's where security is going to spend their time. We're going to go and curate a set of tools for you. Here's your identity aware proxy that you can just drop in front of your application and, you know, simple snippet that will set it up for you. You know, here's, here's your integrated vuln management solution that's going to give you contextually aware updates about libraries that you're using and when those things are going to cause issues or not with your application. I'm seeing companies that are going down this path. This is all coming. So security investing more in these things, developers are going to say, yes, please do that. I think what we might, might have to change is the security mindset. So many security teams are used to basically saying like, our job is to identify risk and your job is to fix risk. That's not really true. Like security's job is, you know, we're we're a cost center. So we have to justify our existence by providing value to the business. The way that we do that is we make breaches less likely to happen. So I think we need to, as an industry, get away from the idea that like security having a big dashboard and then cutting a, a Jira ticket for you, like, and then, you know, job's done. Like we made the Jira ticket, we're good. Like that is not job done. Like we haven't added any any value there. It, the value isn't done until we've mitigated the issue. And the only way we can do this is with strong partnership with developers. So that's where we need to adjust our mindset is really like, what is our job in security? No, I think that's, that's a super important message because it's unifying the objective, like security telling developer security is your job, but also developer reminding security that is, by the way, is also your job. So it's the collaboration, it's a shared OKR between teams and then figuring out a way to best address this. That's right. Yeah. So this actually reminds me a lot of the shared responsibility model with a cloud provider and their customers. You know, whose who's responsibility is cloud security? And the answer is it's both. It's both the customer and the cloud provider. Did you know that in, in many breaches, the cloud provider actually pays some of the costs associated with, with a breach? 
So if you if you have credentials stolen, you know, Amazon could very easily say, hey, that's your fault. Like you, you leaked your keys. But if an attacker gets those keys and uses it just to spin up infrastructure, in many cases, Amazon will fully cover that or split the co- or split the cost with you. Yeah. So this is, you know, the shared responsibility model where both parties like really step up and bring their best and, and share responsibility. That's where we should be in security as well. Our job in security should be to make developers' life as easy as possible, mitigate things for free, give them strong guidance about how to fix problems when needed. And then developers' job needs to be like, hey, you know, our security friends here don't want us to get a breach. They have a lot of context about likelihood of breach and, you know, various impacts that I don't have. And so together, we're going to work and mitigate problems that need to be mitigated. And the other part is there's a lot of security absolutists where they say like any, you know, any vulnerability is too much. Like that's not true. Like many vulnerabilities, it makes no sense for the company to even worry about. So we need to get more pragmatic, you know, risk accepted. We're not going to fix that. You know, sure, there's a vulnerability there, but it's unlikely for, to be worth the time that we're going to spend fixing it. And maybe we should call, we shouldn't call severity risk, but we should call severity actually CVSS severity, and we should call risk risk. That is the likelihood of an event to happen. There might be zero because it's impossible. It's a false positive, and the impact there might be zero because there is nothing to be still. That's right. Yeah. So we we had um, some of this like risk assessment automated. At Netflix. So we had, for example, an AWS account called Wild Wild West. And that account is exactly what it sounds like. This is, you know, you want to spin up some something and like test it, you go in Wild Wild West. So when we had vulnerabilities in Wild Wild West, I would, we would automatically like write those down because it's like, yeah, I don't care. Similarly, if we had, you know, a CBSS medium in one of our main prod services, that could be extremely high severity. And so like really the only way is, is contextual risk adjustment. And, and, you know, that's, it's hard to get to, but if you can get there, then you can be pragmatic about what's worth fixing and what isn't. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's the future. And I think we're going down the right path and the righteous path. Anyway, we're coming close to the time. A couple of things I want to ask you, we, we have barely touched what you're building. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you could probably tell by my passion about the subject. I think one of the one of the areas that I think is way too complex for developers to handle is cloud infrastructure. So for example, an S3 bucket has 70 properties that you can set. And you know, even if you're an expert in the technology, like knowing what those properties are and how to set them for various use cases is too much. Uh, and developers, you know, they don't care about any of this stuff. They just want to use cloud effectively. So they want a bucket to sync files across two applications, or they want a backup bucket, or they want a database, but, you know, it's a prod database, so it should be geo-redundant. It should have really good security controls and, and meet all the compliance requirements. So any one person knowing how to set up cloud infrastructure with these properties is too much of an ask. What many companies will do is they'll say, hey, def- definitely, like, we can't expect developers to do this. And so they'll have central teams helping developers. Basically, if you want a bucket or a database or a subdomain, you come to some team that will help you set it up. That's the position we were in at Netflix. And what ends up happening is it becomes a major ops burden. So those teams, you know, basically they're they're permanently on call for all the buckets and databases and subdomains. They, of course, hate the job because it's, you know, it feels like the IT help desk and you introduce slowness and friction into developers. And so what we're creating here is basically a paved road for cloud infrastructure. So as a developer, you can pick a pattern and you can say, this is what I'm trying to get done in the cloud. Resourcely will automatically set up the infrastructure for you so that it meets all of those best practices, requirements, and whatever. And so developers get self-service. They don't have to talk to anybody. They can get cloud info spun up in five minutes instead of days. And the central team 
which are our customers, they save themselves from the ops headache and uh, jeering people to death. So that's what we're doing. And maybe they're less burned out and more happy to do security. <laughs> I guarantee anybody that's creating buckets or databases day in and day out on behalf of developers does not enjoy that part of the job. I've done it many years myself. Yes, it's not fun. And uh, quick question, why the name? Why Resourcely? Yeah, so naming is hard. Uh, when I sat down with my co-founder, Aladdin, we wanted something that that tied to what we're actually doing. So, you know, not some random name or, you know, like an ancient Greek god or anything like that, but like something somewhat relevant to our business. We wanted it to be something that I could say to you and you would know how to spell, like no ambiguity there. And we wanted a good domain and naming's hard and domains are taken. So we ended up on Resourcely. I like the name. The more I've been using it, I think it does convey, you know, easy to use and, and resource related. So and it's it's memorable. I haven't heard of anything like it so far. <laughs> no, definitely it is. And if somebody wanna follow you, where can they find more about what you're building? You know, where you're talking about these things, blog and so on. Sure. Yeah. So we have resourcely.io as our site. We're in the process of a website revamp right now. So we're going to have much more details on it. If anybody's interested in Paved Road, I have an interview that I, I did with Jason explaining you know, how this came about. And yeah, in general, we're going to be talking much more about the product and the approach in the, in the upcoming months. So uh, follow Resourcely on Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I also talk a lot about this stuff on my personal LinkedIn and Twitter. Any of those work. Brilliant. Travis, we have a, a tradition in the podcast that is leaving everything with a nice and warm and fuzzy feeling with a positive message. I think with resource and paved road, we kind of went that way, but what would be your, your positive message for the audience? Final and positive message is the security community is so good at sharing what works with each other. You know, I think that there really is this like, you know, it's kind of us against the adversary's mindset. And the good news is that with all of the the job demand and security, more smart people are entering the industry than ever before. And, you know, many, many people are finding security as a path to better themselves. You know, it's a really good career path for them. It's going to help them achieve something that they never considered possible. So I think the good news is that help is on the way. And then once you're in the industry, there's a lot of friendly people that can share ideas and, and help make every, everybody stronger. So I think that it's a, it's, it's a very much communal effort. Brilliant. So... We come to the, unfortunately, to the end of the show. So I wish, so I w- first of all, it was like a super fun conversation. <laughs> it's so fun to actually smash up uh, application security and cloud security together. It's one of my favorite topics. Everybody, you had a different way to think about security. And we talked about paved road. We talked about a different shift in mindset. You don't actually have to break the bill. There is a better way. There is a smarter way. And if you like to hear more, follow Travis and have a look at Resourcely. This is Francesco Spilloni, your host. Stay safe out there. Thank you very much, Travis, for coming. Thank you. This is fun. Cheers. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.